those are words from Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens. Um, that is a video clip, uh, which uh, is a debate in which uh, Christopher Hitchens and um, Christian philosopher William Lane Craig participated in at Biola University uh, not long ago. Now, Christopher Hitchens is an author and a journalist and an outspoken atheist, and he has written books such as uh, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, and uh, Hitchens is among a group of individuals known as the New Atheists, the New Atheists, Uh, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, and Richard Dawkins. Uh, These four uh, have written popular best-selling books, and I'll include in that group, well, these four have been called the fearsome foursome of the new atheists, and I'll include in that group uh, an author by the name of Victor Stenger, uh, which Hitchens mentioned in his video. These have written popular best-selling books trying to show that religion makes absolutely no sense at all, and they're called uh, new atheists, uh, as Hitchens said, because they are recent, uh, early 21st century um, uh, individuals. Uh, their arguments, however, are really not new. Uh, they have not produced a, a smoking gun argument to deny uh, God's existence. Uh, and what's new, though, is that their rhetoric is highly charged. Uh, What's new is that this time they're uh, saying that even showing respect for religion, well, that's bad. Or even being congenial to people of faith, that's, that's bad. What's new is that this time they are asserting that religion is a virus and it needs to be eradicated like the smallpox. Uh, what's new is their rhetoric. It's argumentative, very inflammatory, and uh, very, very vicious. Uh, for instance, Sam Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, says this. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. You should have seen our deaf interpreter tackle those (laughs) words first service. I mean, uh, smoke was coming up from her hands there. It was... It's an amazing feat, really. It was a miracle. That's right. It disproves atheism. It was amazing. You should have been there. Well, Sam Harris, who I mentioned earlier, um, puts it more bluntly when he wrote, we know enough at this moment to say that the God of Abraham is not only unworthy of the immensity of creation, he is unworthy even of man. So there's strong, uh, what I would consider blasphemous rhetoric. Um, 
and very sophisticated word crafting by highly intelligent, highly intelligent um, authors who are very quick on their feet. Very quick on their feet. And um, though they have sold a lot of books, the content in their books for atheism uh, can be and really has been refuted effectively. Uh, In fact, uh, the more respected uh, book reviewers, uh, and by that I mean the London Review of Books, um, they really haven't given them high marks at all. Uh, Most scholars see the weakness of their arguments. Nonetheless, they need to be taken seriously. They need to be taken seriously. And, and I say this because they raise a, a fair question. Does God exist? Does God exist? Why should we believe that God exists? Is there a God? And it's a fair question. And it's why we're talking about it in our series this fall, engaged, living your faith and sharing your life. Um, it's a fair question on, on, on several counts. You know, first of all, we, I mean, here we are. Let's just start with what's going on in this room right now. A lot of time and trouble and treasure has been expended and is expended every Sunday producing a Sunday morning community worship service. From what goes on in this room to our children's ministry and our student ministry, a lot of time and energy is expended on this facility, uh, expansion of our parking lot, uh, to Tuesday nights, celebrate recovery small groups to Wednesday night, our, children, our student ministry, discipleship, to our, our, our big stuff, uh, children's ministry outreach that uh, we do, uh, to Friday nights, celebrate recovery, general group meeting, to, to the Operation Christmas Child uh, missions outreach that goes on. I mean, a lot of time and treasure gets expended on a weekly basis Because we've answered in the affirmative, does God exist? So it's not a light question, is it? The Dominican Republic, the mission trips that happen. So that's an important important question. And it's a fair question. Because if the new atheists are right, then what we're doing here this morning really has about as much significance as and is basically on par with, you know, a Star Wars convention. And people gather, and, you know, instead of wearing your, you know, whatever church clothes you wear, you come in your Star Wars costume. And you hear, you know, a message each week from, you know, Darth Vader. Luke. I am your father. You, you hear that, and we come in stormtrooper outfits and Chewbacca, etc., and we sing choruses to the force, and 
you know, and we just all feel good together. If, you know, if, if they're right, you see. So it's important for us to work that question through. And that's just in here. You know, uh, let's go outside of this campus. And we live in a university community. And we live in a, a community where, where, you know, two very important institutions of higher learning exist in Parkland College and in our own University of Illinois. And so it's important if we're going to be engaged, if we're going to live our faith and share our life, we bear witness to the truth of Christ and to the reality of Christ by the caliber of our scholarship. We do. And it's been argued that the university is the most important secular institution shaping Western culture. And if, if that's true, we need to engage the university. We need to ga- engage the institutions of higher learning. And that means that some of you need to consider that becoming a faculty member or becoming an academic professional, either in administration or support or teaching or research or what have you, you need to consider that becoming a part of the the university institution uh, of higher education is a calling from the Lord to be salt and light, you know, with as much depth as what I would say my calling from the Lord to be your pastor is. And if Christian scholars show that they deserve a place at the table in our top-tier universities, then their colleagues will treat their beliefs with greater respect in the classroom, and the perception of Christianity among students will change. So that's why it's important to get A's. This question is relevant for us inside this room. This question is relevant because of our community. And I'll tell you, on a very personal level, on a very personal level, this question, does God exist? I, I find it to be extremely relevant every time I do a funeral. And I've done about 100 funerals in my 21 years at Windsor Road. And what I mean by that is that, you know, the, the person who used to be sitting in the chair, which you perhaps now occupy, this person, the person with whom you were once conversing or worshiping, with, or this person that you were talking with, or smiling at, or sharing coffee, handshaking, nodding, praying with in the foyer or in here, this person's physical body is now lifeless, and they are placed in a casket, or their ashes are in an urn or scattered elsewhere. And in every one of us, we want to know the answer to the question, does my life count? Is there purpose and meaning to this one life that I've been given. You know, we, um, there is in all of us, I believe, the voice of gladiators Marcus Aurelius who said to Maximus, I am dying, Maximus. When a man faces his end, he wants to know that his life served some purpose. Some purpose. And if the new atheists are correct, your life has ultimately about nothing. If they're correct, ultimately, your life serves no purpose. You're just a 
You're just a spark that appears in infinite blackness, and that's it. Really? See, I'd say that makes this a pretty relevant question, don't you? And so, I want us to ask the question, does God exist? Now, that said, I really don't think that the best place to ask the question, does God exist, is in church. I know. This week, I received a letter from uh, one of our judges in town. I know the judge. I know the judge personally. The judge knows me personally. Uh, in fact, I, I, I officiated at this judge's son's wedding, and the letter I received was very well written. I was kind of disappointed because I know the judge so well that the letter did not begin with Dear Randy. Rather, it began with the words, Dear Prospective Juror. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to get yours. You laugh. It, It was a very gracious, it was a very gracious and compelling invitation to, uh, to complete to complete a questionnaire for jury duty. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this jury duty thing, um, but I will tell you this. Before jurors are selected, uh, almost, you know, ad nauseum, the judge makes it a point to say that the defendant, the defendant is presumed innocent until proven guilty. I don't know how many times I heard that. Uh, the last time I served uh, in jury duty. The defendant's presumed innocent until proven guilty. Now, it might interest you to know that the judge never, ever orders the prosecuting attorney to say that they must prove their charges beyond a shadow of a doubt. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. To, to expect the prosecution to show evidence beyond a shadow of a doubt is deemed by our legal system to be unrealistic and, and unreasonable. Because life just doesn't work that way, does it? I mean, seldom do we make day-to-day decisions with absolute certainty. Instead, prosecuting attorneys are told that they bear the responsibility of presenting evidence that will convince the jury beyond what? Beyond a reasonable doubt. Beyond a reasonable doubt. And why? Well, because every day we make decisions based on high probability. I mean, when you got in your car this morning to drive to church, you did not know that the other drivers were going to obey the traffic light or stay on their side of the double yellow lines. You didn't know that, but there's a high probability that they, that they will. I mean, you're here. When you deposit your check in the bank, you don't know for sure that 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 money's going to be there when you need it, but there's a high probability that it will. You know, about an hour from now, we're going to be having lunch, and that means we'll be going to restaurants, and we'll eat food that we didn't prepare, but you'll go into that restaurant, and you'll eat that food, and you don't for certain sure that while you were waiting for your hamburger that the cook didn't lace it with poison that'll make you just fall over dead in your booth right there you don't know that for sure 
Think about that in an hour. When you go in for surgery or get married or fly in an airplane, pretty much most of the rest of life is going to have to be negotiated on the basis of determining probability factors. We rarely enjoy the luxury of making decisions on the basis of absolute certainty. We're conditioned to to look for clues and consider the clues, evaluate the clues, and then from the clues make decisions based on high probability factors. And so, so the insistence of absolute proof for God is, is unrealistic and unreasonable. Life doesn't work that way. And this is a very important point because, well, for instance, Richard Dawkins, one of the new atheists, well, what happens is they, they concoct their own definition of religious faith and then they attack that definition. For instance, Richard Dawkins writes, faith is blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. Faith is a process of non-thinking. Faith is a kind of mental illness, one of the world's great evils comparable to the smallpox virus, but harder to eradicate. Faith is evil precisely because it requires no justification, brooks no argument. Well, okay. But I don't know of any Christian that would define faith that way. That's not the definition of Christian faith. I mean, wouldn't you agree with me if I said that Christian faith has to do with the the conviction of the mind based on adequate evidence? Notice the C's here. Conviction of the mind leading to confidence in the heart, leading to consent of the will, which shows itself in conduct. Conviction. Confidence, consent, conduct. I mean, isn't that what we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1? Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What evidence? What clues? Well, in the time that remains, I want to share some. I want to share some clues for the existence of God. Clues which have stood the test of time and debate. They're not original arguments here. They've been seasoned with time, battered with debates, and yet they've served as foundational pillars for believers long before we were born and actually long after we die. And the first clue is this. The clue, we, we can call it the design clue. The clue from design. The design clue seems to say this. The design clue says this. Go outside. Go outside. Outside you can see order and balance to the natural world. You can see cycles. You can see the water cycle. You can see the plant cycle. You can see the life cycle. The design clue says go home and tear the back off of your laptop and you'll see circuits and cards and chips, all of which work together so that the computer can function. And you and I both know that computer didn't put itself together. If you sail around the world and you are on the ocean and you come upon a big piece of machinery that looks like an offshore petroleum drilling platform, what are you going to conclude, that it just appeared by itself? 
If you traveled to an alien planet and saw machines which looked like tractors, green tractors, what would you conclude? Oh, there must be intelligent beings who built those tractors. And we could talk about the navigational system of a homing pigeon, the spinning abilities of a spider. We could talk about the the upstream return of the salmon. Why don't we talk about the human body? Several years ago, uh, Richard Swenson, who uh, used to be on the faculty, the medical faculty at the University of Wisconsin, uh, spoke here at Windsor Road telling about the incredible design of the human body and how that's a clue to the existence of God. Listen to what he once wrote. He said, did you know that the average human heart pumps a thousand gallons a day? 55 million gallons in a lifetime. It's enough to fill 13 super tankers. It never sleeps. It will beat 2.5 billion times in a lifetime. He wrote, were you aware that your body uses energy so efficiently that if you ride a bicycle for one hour at 10 miles per hour, your body will use the same amount of energy contained in three ounces of carbohydrate. And then he says this, if your car were this efficient, it would get 900 miles to the gallon. He wrote, your DNA contains information about your body. There's 1.8 meters... 1.8 meters of DNA folded into the nucleus of each cell in your body. That's equivalent to 30 miles of fishing line into a cherry pit. It's not stuffed, it's folded. If it's folded one way, it becomes a skin cell. If it's folded another way, it becomes a liver cell, and so on. To write out the information in one cell would take 300 volumes, each volume being 500 pages thick. And Swenson asks, where did this information come from? Who designed it? Is it possible, as Stephen Hawking asserts, that all of this came about by some chance quantum physics event added to a bunch of gravity? Is that possible? Is it? The answer to the question is, yes, it is. It is. And and let's just process that, all right? How many of you play poker? You say, is this a trick question? My pastor's asking me if I play poker. All right, I'll raise my hand. I don't play very well. Let's say that I played you in poker. Let's say that I was the dealer in a poker match and I was playing you. And let's say that I dealt myself 20 straight royal flushes in a row in the same game. Okay? Now, just as you're getting ready to unholster your pistol... I say to you, now hold your horses. There's, 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 there's two possibilities as to why this happens, okay? All right? One possibility is, according to the new atheists, you know, although this looks suspicious, if there's an infinite number of universes for any possible distribution of poker hands, 
one of which allows for 20 straight royal flushes. I mean, it's just possible that we're living in the one where such a thing has happened. Okay? That's one possibility. The other possibility is the preacher's a cheater. Okay? Which means he designed it. Which is more reasonable to you? Uh, years ago, um, family, um, the husband and the father's name is Kurt Bach. And Kurt, um, Kurt Bach used to fly Air Force Two when he was in the Air Force. And Kurt uh, once told me about a very close friend of his, a gentleman by the name of Mike DeLorenzo, who is at this point a retired uh, brigadier general. And Kurt, Kurt told me this about Mike. He said that when uh, he and Mike were cadets at the Air Force Academy, uh, they went to the same Bible study, and Kurt said, I was always in awe of Mike's walk with Christ. So years pass, and they both progress in their careers. Kurt told about the time when Mike DeLorenzo was interviewing to be the head of the astronautics department at the Air Force Academy. Now, Mike was known for his strong Christian example among his colleagues. When it came time to interview, uh, someone in the committee who was a full professor looked at Mike and said, I have one thing for you, Mike. I know you're a Christian, and I know that you have a PhD in astronautical engineering. How can a scientist like you believe in the book of Genesis? And at this point, Mike was was afraid that his interview was going to be over because it was not the kind of question he was going to shrink from. So Kurt said that Mike prayed silently, and then he answered, the earth is tilted at 23.5 degrees a perfect design. As an astronautical engineer, when I see a design like that, I look for the designer. And that's what my life is built around, seeking the designer. What are your conclusions? Well, there's another clue I want to talk about. There's the design clue And then there's the Bernie Madoff clue. The Bernie Madoff clue. You know who Bernie Madoff is, don't you? In March of 2009, Madoff pleaded guilty to 11 federal crimes and admitted to turning his wealth management business into a massive Ponzi scheme that defrauded thousands of investors of billions of dollars. And in June of 2009, Madoff was sentenced to 150 years in prison, the maximum allowed. And in his own words, in his own words, one big lie, one giant Ponzi scheme. And yet thinking about his demise leads me to conclude that God exists. And here's why. Everybody knows that defrauding a client or an investor or a shareholder is wrong Everybody. I mean, everybody knows that cutting in line is wrong. When Timothy McVeigh bombed the federal building in Oklahoma City, people said, that's evil. When terrorists attacked our country, people cried, that's evil. When dirty old men download kiddie porn, we shake our heads and we say, that's evil, that's wrong. Okay, well, what do we mean when we say that? 
Do, do you mean, well, that's just your personal opinion? Or is it wrong and evil universally and absolutely? So the question then is, how do we account for this moral law? Who gave it? You know, do random gases in a chance cosmic explosion account for the fact that in virtually every culture of the planet, people value truth-telling over lying, kindness over violence, loyalty over backstabbing? Are gases and germs or genes capable of creating a moral code of values and implanting them in the minds and hearts of people worldwide? A remarkably consistent code of values in billions of individuals. Really? Tim Keller put it this way. If there is no God, then there's really no way to say that one action is moral and another is immoral. You can only say, I like this. Doesn't it make sense that God is the author of true and real morality? There's the design argument, the Bernie Madoff argument, and then there's the Beethoven clue, the Beethoven argument. Isn't it it true that when, when you behold great art, paintings, sculpture, architecture, music, that, that great art offers the message that life is not just a tale told by an idiot, that, that, that it offers hope and joy and strength. And, and, and it's, there's a mystery, a sanctity to it that, you know, you can't put this under the microscope yet. At the same time, what is it that, about it that makes it so moving? Leonard Bernstein once said this about Beethoven. He said, Beethoven turned out pieces of breathtaking rightness. Rightness, that was the word. He says, when you get that feeling that that every note succeeds that last is the only possible note that can rightly happen at that instance, in that context, then chances are you're listening to Beethoven. He is the real goods, the the stuff from heaven. Isn't that fascinating how how he uses such transcendent, otherworldly language to describe this music? He has the power to make you feel at the finish something is right in the world. Wow. Great art does that, don't you think? And still someone might protest, well, just because it feels right doesn't mean it is. You know what? That's true. But are we, are we just talking about feelings here? Wouldn't it be more accurate to describe these as appetites? Appet- you know, a baby has an appetite for food. A duck has an appetite for water. A thoroughbred has an appetite to run. And is there an appetite in my life that this world cannot fill? And if so, is that not a clue for the existence of one who can? That's a powerful argument. It's a powerful clue. The clue from Beethoven. Design, Bernie Madoff, Beethoven, and then there's the Soviet Union. The clue from the Soviet Union. Now, in mathematics, this is called proof by the opposite. You can prove something is true by showing that the opposite is false. 
You know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, it was reported there was a massive turning to God. And when asked why, one famous Russian uh, cosmologist, uh, uh, um, what's his name? Let's see the slide up there. Andre Gribb, thank you, forgot it. Andre Gribb said, for 70 years, we tried Marxist atheism in this country, and it didn't work. So everybody figured the opposite must be true. That's worth considering. Design, Bernie Madoff, uh, Beethoven, the Soviet Union, uh, those, are, those are four. Time doesn't permit me to explain others except for one. The one clue that I believe to be the most powerful clue to the existence of God, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said in John 3.13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. In John chapter 8, verse 23, Jesus said, I am from above. I am not of this world. And Jesus himself declared the existence of God in John chapter 14, verse 9. He said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And I like how one scholar described the life and purpose and ministry of Jesus Christ. He wrote, before Jesus came, no one knew what God was like. People thought of God as king and judge, as justice and holiness, as wrath and vengeance, but they never conceived of the supreme wonder of the love of God. So in Jesus Christ, God comes and says, I love you like that. And so when we see Jesus healing the sick or feeding the hungry or befriending the outcasts, this is God saying, I love you like that. And had Jesus stopped at the cross, it would have meant that there was some point at which the love of God would not go. But Jesus didn't stop. He was crucified. And the cross means that God in Christ says, you can betray me. You can hate me, you can misjudge me, you can mock me, you can crucify me, and nothing you can do will alter my love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He died to show us God's love. He died so that at the sight of him, we should be moved and compelled to repent of our puny kingdoms and pursue his with all of our heart and soul and mind. And furthermore, it wasn't merely the crucifixion of Christ that revealed the existence of God, but the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, bodily resurrection. And from this we know in history, Christ was crucified, the tomb was empty, and hundreds of people experienced seeing, conversing, and eating with the risen Christ, Jesus Christ, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. These are the ultimate reasons for God's existence. Which means that your life is not purposeless. God has put you here for a purpose. 
Acts chapter 13, verse 36 says, For when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep. Isn't that what we want to do? When we're through with God's purposes for us, it's just time to go be with God. It means that God is the perfect designer, the perfect watchmaker. It means that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It means that because of him, I have value and worth. Because of him, I matter to him. It means that he knows me better than I know myself. And it means he loves me more than he loves all other forms of life. God loves me more than he loves dolphins or bald eagles or sparrows. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 26, are you not much more valuable than they? And it also means that God is the moral lawgiver, meaning he is interested in me. He's interested in what I think and how I act. Why would God give us morality if he weren't interested in how I acted? His will is good and pleasing and perfect, and he expects me to pursue that, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And therefore, he's put an appetite in my heart, in my life, for him. And he wants my life to reflect his glory. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has planted eternity in the human heart. And ultimately, it means that in Christ, God rescued me. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you're going to read the new atheists, well, read them. And you should read Francis Collins, The Language of God. Francis Collins is currently the director of the National Institutes of Health. And before that, he headed up the Human Genome Project. And in 2007, he wrote a New York Times best-selling book, The Language of God, which tells the story of his uh, vocation as a world-renowned scientist and his journey from atheism to faith in Christ. He, he w- was a gifted medical student, and Collins thought that it was convenient to not to have to deal with God. But then one of his patients told him about her faith, and then she asked him, this brilliant man, what about you? What do you believe? And in Colin's own words, I stuttered and stammered and felt the color rising in my face, and I said, well, uh, I don't think I believe in anything. But suddenly, that seemed like a very thin answer. And that was unsettling. And then after a long period of searching, which, which included uh, grilling a senior pastor and reading C.S. Lewis, Francis Collins finally came to Christ after watching the beauty of creation. And here, here's, here's the account of his conversion in his own words. He wrote, I had to make a choice. A full year had passed since I decided to believe in some sort of God, and now I was being called to account. And so on a beautiful fall day, as I was hiking In the Cascade Mountains during my first trip west of the Mississippi, the majesty and beauty of God's creation overwhelmed my resistance as I rounded a corner and saw a beautiful and unexpected frozen waterfall hundreds of feet high. I knew the search was over. The next morning, I knelt in the dewy grass as the sun rose 
And I surrendered to Jesus Christ.